0: what he said, make it yours. As long as it sounds good, nobody's gonna care what it's about. Is that so? Nobody cares what anything's about. Is that right? Who the hell listens to lyrics anyway? Dry up, tubbo. Phantom of the Paradise Uh, I decided we should watch this film again because I know know that it features largely in your personal uh, um, pantheon of of movies and I loved it when I was a kid and so I thought oh it would be nice to revisit it but when I put it on the effect was so potent I love this movie so much I have to say I think it's magnificent
1: it is a good film it's it's got a lot of very memorable imagery and it's got one hell of a soundtrack I love Paul Williams
0: those two things are exactly what I would say the memorable imagery scene after scene I remembered in exquisite detail they they were so perfectly fashioned and had such an impact on me
1: it's got a very um hyper-realized design to it which designed by Jack Fisk and it's not a 70s look
0: may I just also add this is inevitable that the set dresser was Sissy Spacek
1: she was I put that down to the fact that maybe she bought a few pencil sharpeners in for a desk I'm not sure how heavily involved she was with set <laughs> you're dressing
0: sin- you're such a cynic the point being that Sissy Spacek is an amazing actress who would shoot to stardom under De Palma's direction in a film called Carrie and she'd go on to do things like Coal Miner's Daughter um, many many fine roles in films I mm. think she was a terrific actress Badlands yeah that was a knockout of a film so for her to be a dress okay that's just sort of like a little aside matt seems to doubt the veracity of her claim to have even been a dresser on this was
1: this before or after carrie oh for christ's sake this is before, before. Carrie. long before isn't it yeah
0: yeah because de palma was sort of an underground filmmaker he's always making films which were quite commercial but quite quirky and he hadn't sort of come to the surface he was still making these films were sort of falling in the zone of exploitation films, not because necessarily they were like that, they were a bit like that, but because they were sort of underground guerrilla filmmaking, not mainstream cinema.
1: Indeed, and this is definitely not mainstream cinema. In fact, it was a bit of a failure on release, but a huge cult hit following, so eventually yes, made I want money.
0: to qualify that, because it did, uh, it was not a huge success on release, but i grew up in a town called winnipeg in midwestern canada hello everybody in Min- winnipeg i love the place both of you <laughs> no it's a huge sprawling city and the sort of <laughs> sort of snow that's coming down today you might be thinking of medicine had a moose jaw both of which are thriving metropolises but uh, to get back to winnipeg a wonderful place but it has a particular character of its own and it's known for things like it's although it's not famous in some cultural ways, it's Mount Everest for heavy metal bands, Winnipeg is a major venue for them, and perhaps that relates to the fact that when the Phantom of the Paradise came to Winnipeg and started showing in cinemas there, it just played for a year, it was an enormous success, it just played and played and played. And I knew this film because I came, I used to return, I was living in England by this time, but I flew back in the summers to Canada, so my friends told me about it, and I got the soundtrack album too, because that's the other thing. This film begins with this band that we will learn is called the Fruit Juicy Loops? Fruits. Juicy Fruits. And they're singing this 50s song. And it's this wonderful pastiche by the genius, Paul Williams, in a 50s song. It's it's really uh, catchy. And it's just a, also a perfect piss take.
1: I discovered this one purely by accident, this film. Uh, there was a place called Merton Abbey Mills, which was um, on a Sunday. They'd have a huge market there. And you could buy a lot of things like bootleg tapes and things like that. But there was one shop there which, for some reason, it had records in the tops of the units and in the bottoms of the units had loads of secondhand paperbacks. And I was mooching through the paperbacks and found the novelization of Phantom of the Paradise there, which had a beautiful cover. It was the poster of the film, uh, the black background with the sort of the art in the middle with the tar, the lightning, and everything else. And when I bought it, the guy said, oh, I've got the, um, the LP of that as well if you want it.
0: Oh, you're kidding! So, what, a so great, what a great, what a
1: great full service stall at Nabby Mills. Oh, the problem was wow. is that I didn't the soundtrack on records, which I fucking hated records. Oh, vinyl, nothing's better. Nothing's better. I
0: had, the, <laughs> better. I had the
1: soundtrack and I had the paperback, the and I couldn't get the film experience. anywhere because there's no UK VHS release of Phantom of the Paradise that I could ever find. And so this so was in the
0: days, just for young listeners, at before this CDs would have existed, but not DVDs at this point.
1: When I Finished my exams, this was in '92. Yes. Uh, my parents packed me off to Florida for two weeks to stay with my aunt and uncle, and while I was but over there, I went into a must branch of Sam Goodyear. What a horrible Sorry? thing
0: for them to do! <laughs>
1: Just so it was nice to get away. Um, I got to go to Universal Studios, which was fantastic. Well, Florida's
0: is great, um, very humid.
1: And in this branch of Sam Goody I found the VHS of Phantom of the Paradise. Did your little heart skip a beat? Well, I bought it there and then, then got it home. We had to buy a new VCR because ours didn't but, play So you knew you, you had to
0: do that. I thought this might be an unpleasant surprise.
1: Well, I've never had a chance to check. Um, there was a time when panel NTSC would play on most things without too much trouble. But um, this was 92. It was a bit early for that. Anyway, finally got to see the film and match it up to the soundtrack. And it's slightly disappointed. Oh, you're kidding. How because interesting. Because the soundtrack is bigger than the film is. The film's very low budget.
0: I've got to say, I'm going to rush. One of the consequences of seeing this film is I'm going to rush out and buy the soundtrack again on original vinyl.
1: Well, good luck finding it. I think it's quite pricey.
0: Oh, uh, Andrew, resist the urge to immediately go on onto Discogs and check prices. No, I'll, I'll calm down in a moment. So, uh, never mind. That. Unfortunately,
1: a, anything relating to Phantom of the Paradise is very collectible. It's a it has brilliant a soundtrack.
0: It's just, and I remembered every song word for word, note for note. Well, they're bloody good songs. Paul Williams writes
1: very, very good songs. He does. Have you heard any of his other stuff?
0: Look, on the basis of this, I might uh, overcome my strong religious objection to watching Bugsy
1: Malone. Bugsy Malone's a great soundtrack. I mean, just something like Rainbow Connection, which is
0: such a good song. What is that? Is it just a a, a one-off pop song, not part of a soundtrack?
1: Not part of a soundtrack, although I think The Muppets is what made it big. Um, But everyone has covered Rainbow Connection. There's a wonderful one, if you can find it, with Debbie, Harry and Kermit. Um, that's, that's my favourite version. That's it sounds superb.
0: I love it, just on the basis of Debbie Harry and Kermit. Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
1: Um, yeah, Paul Williams is a strange, strange little man. Um, I I don't fully understand his career. And about uh, two, three years ago, well, we there was a We need to add at this
0: point that Paul Williams actually stars in this film as well as Brian's he Stars in it.
1: He wrote the music, uh, the book and lyrics. He also.
0: He did not write the book. Uh, he, he, the book words of music sorry yeah don't put in a musical you'd say that, that this, for, for what it's worth the film is written by and directed by Brian De Palma although it's clear that there was another writer involved a woman whose name I can't put my brain to at this exact moment because it's originally this was a script called the Phantom of the Film War does it sure. ring any bells
1: it doesn't um, it's a curious script because it is a convolution of three stories everyone knows quite well and i would say one of
0: those is Faust and one of those is the phantom of the opera and the other one is picture of dorian gray oh yes actually yes yes you're right (laughs) okay i desperately wanted to contradict you but i can't
1: yeah and it's a it's strange because the three sit so well together they do it it's a well-structured script and it's also some of the there's some very clever stuff in this and i don't want to be leaping ahead here but one well, of the key elements of Phantom New
0: What I hadn't realized is that two of my favorite gags of all time, which I sort of repeated for decades afterwards and forgot the source of, were in this. And one of them is, is one the contract. Made... That, 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 okay. that, so, this is the Faust thing. So, just very quickly, Paul Williams is an incredibly successful record producer, basically a musical mogul who's exploiting talented people. Uh, he's based a little bit on Phil Spector, who just recently died but like a, a, a sort of inflated to Howard Hughes proportions. And so he's signed up this young songwriter called Winslow, uh, who's he's going to become the Phantom of the Opera. The point is that Paul Williams hands him his contract, which is thicker than the phone book, and the gag is it includes this clause that says all clauses that aren't included will be deemed to be included. Yes, which actually is in an Amazon contract. Somebody just put it. Oh, no. What? What? Yes, it is a contract in a limited sense. It's one of those boilerplate things where you click to say you've read the terms and conditions, right?
1: Well, Amazon have this uh, thing in the contract you sign up with them as a supplier, uh, which we found out when we were still publishing, which is that anything not covered in the contract they can add at any time they like, and you've already agreed to the contract. That's, so that's the rule. So in agreeing a... to
0: that. I thought this was just an insane joke, what you're saying this no, is actually it's a, real. It's
1: a thing. It's in terms and conditions now. I mean, this film you know, is, is well ahead of its time in terms of that terms and conditions, because we all do it. So we, t- we install something that says, do you accept the terms and conditions? You're not going to read through it. Or you just click yes. Yes. And there are clauses like that. And they can add anything
0: to terms and conditions. And you can do nothing about it because you, what are you going to do? That, that's hard. the subject of another series of podcasts. It is. But uh, to get back to this, I thought it was a hilarious gag. Did you not think it was a hilarious gag? before it became uh, reality yeah exactly it's like it donald funnier Trump. at
1: the time than it is now now it's far from funny and it's just quite yeah it's fair enough okay well
0: let's see if my other gag has weathered better I, can it's i guess the... what it is yes
1: is it i know drug real from real real
0: Are you... it is my friend <laughs> <laughs> you bastard wow he knows me so well folks that wasn't rehearsed i'm so pleased that you got it right dude i'm a little bit annoyed but mostly pleased yeah
1: it's a good line. It's so well delivered as well by Garrick Graham. who Now,
0: who I've never heard of in any other context, but he plays Beef, who is this yes. extraordinary... I expected him to be, on the basis of the name, a kind of meatloaf type character, but he's... I don't know how. what you'd compare him. He's, he's sort of very butch and very effeminate too.
1: Yeah, well, I think the idea is that he's um, almost Jagger-esque, where Mick Jagger... He is supposed to, to be
0: Jagger. Is... I saw something in the extras that showed that, that they were aiming at a Jagger figure.
1: Yeah, Jagger prances about the stage you know giving it the macho thing but actually in person he's quite gentle and effeminate soft-spoken yeah
0: well this Um, guy isn't soft-spoken he's hilarious and he's he's trying to escape because swan is is manipulating him to what is he anyway there's a strategy (laughs) of a foot he's forcing him to perform when the phantom's already threatened him yeah the phantom has threatened him and this guy does the right thing he thinks okay the phantom's threatened me i'll get out of town but he's intercepted by philbin who's this quite a good secondary bad guy
1: yeah the, the, the roadie
0: exactly he's sort of a yeah. greaser roadie isn't he
1: and um, yeah they just um he says you're on drugs he goes i know drug real from real real i just
0: <laughs> love that line so much <laughs> this is this is a great movie everybody just stop what you're doing and watch this movie it's seriously because it's although it's kind of dark and satanic it's really good fun the, the songs are incredibly catchy this could be the shortest podcast ever because basically it's just a, 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 an endless encomium to this film. Well,
1: like as, as I was saying earlier, there there are some very clever bits in this and it does borrow from Phantom of the Opera. And it, we were talking about Phantom of the Opera on another podcast. We just did Dario Argento's Phantom of the Opera. And one of the key scenes in any Phantom of the Opera adaptation is the chandelier being dropped on the audience. Oh, that
0: happens. This yeah, it does doesn't... it
1: slightly differently. In this yeah. case, uh, the Phantom takes the lighting, which is a chandelier, which is a neon lightning bolt and then passes <laughs> it on a fishing wire down the stage into beef killing him and that, that's the that chandelier is, that's
0: so different do you think it actually is inspired by the chandelier i think top? it's
1: definitely what it is yeah. it's, it's the lighting dropping and being used as, as the climax I'm, of the I'm, phantom's rage i'm delighted rage. that you
0: managed to enlist one of the classic tropes of the, the phantom of the opera but can i just say i need to ask some questions <laughs> did, did, did kiss imitate the face paint in this or was this uh, imitating kiss
1: i don't know i've never really liked kiss or or got into the the whole deal the with them so i don't know but is... I, 74 so people
0: can work that out at home but mm. that's part of it i think this is the same sequence that matt's talking about there's this amazing sequence where they're about to launch beef who's going to be this new rock star one of the gags in this is that there's a, that the uh the, the band the rock band is so meretricious because initially they're juicy fruits who have like this kind of 50s greaser do what band is that a description of them yeah and I, then I, I, without a, like without uh blinking they're very happy to completely sell out and reinvent themselves as is, is it the undead at this point no, no i think different. it's meant
1: to be a different band each time it's the same performers because if you think about it, the juicy fruits were blown up
0: oh well no wasn't the juicy or was it the juicy fruits who were doing the beach boys type thing that was that, was it yeah, they were doing the rehearsal on yeah, that and then the bomb goes up, I so that think kills that them. Bomb, my, you may be right, but my interpretation was that this was actually the same people who were just so mercenary that they just happily shapeshifted into any new style of band that Swan wanted. So that would be my take on it. because It certainly although, works both ways. Yeah, uh, But at this point, what I was getting at is the undead are marching around with face paint like it in Kiss. and it also reminded me of Rocky Horror several times. So they're marching around in this kind of Frankenstein monster movie vibe and what they're doing is their guitars have got like these sharp cutting blades on them yeah in quotes and they're slicing into the audience and they're slicing the limbs off the audience which are obviously just stooges in the audience that the cutting blades are silver painted cardboard but they're gathering up these fake limbs and behind the screen they're sewing them together in this Frankenstein style what I'm getting at is what a great musical number and what a great introduction for like a new rock star in the form of beef
1: it is really good and you're right about the Rocky Horror thing this would have been in production in 73 because it came out in 74 Rocky Horror first hit the stage in 73 so I'm wondering if there was any influence there because very the close
0: thing, very close to call isn't
1: it there's another part where um, Winslow has written his big cantata that he wants uh, Swan to buy and Swan uh, it's Philbin been him, have you got any of just like the up numbers like a couple of singles yeah and He said well there's no singles it's just one long piece of music and he goes what can we do with that and seventy three was also the year of Tubula Bells, and that was the same problem Virgin had: is that they had this huge piece of music with yeah. no single, yeah. and they wanted a single release, and they couldn't find one. So Branson, this is what sold Tubular Bells: they played the whole album live on the BBC. John Peel played the whole lot. Well,
0: it's lovely, and it's album.
1: sold loads of copies. So that that idea of having a large piece of music and just wanting a couple of singles from, I think there's a lot of influences. Yeah, but, but Winslow is not going to have much
0: luck with that line of argument. No, no sorry. <laughs>
1: Um, yeah, what else have we got on this one?
0: They, now there's an interesting production thing. Did you watch the documentary at all? I started to, and I really want to, but you made me watch a bunch of other films before we say anything else. This film begins with a voiceover that sounds like Rod Serling. Is it actually him? I
1: don't know.
0: But you, but you're supposed to be an expert on this. Folks, I'm not an expert on this I've got to apologize. I'm so disappointed in Matt. He's really let us down this week. Oh, well, it sounds, is, folks. I think it is. I think it is Rod Serling. Uh, and I thought it was wonderful, but, but this was tempered by the fact they got this, the film begins with this corporate logo, and uh, the the company is called Death Records, isn't it? Yes. And I knew, because Matt had told me this, I was on the lookout for it. I realized that Swan, who has, has this record company, uh, they, when they made the film, it was called Swan Song. Matt told yes. me this, and all through the movie... Everything is branded Swan Song, presumably with that Swan logo, which we see a couple of times.
1: You see it a few times. They didn't manage to cover them all up, but they, some of them are so clumsy. And one of my yeah, like disappointments... there's a
0: there's a reel to reel tape recorder which has just somebody's just used just taken a black marker pen and crossed out the name Swan Song and then Swan Logo is still present on the tape recorder things like that, right?
1: There's some really clumsy digital changes as well which were well, made I, at the time this,
0: I thought this would have been too early for digital manipulation
1: Well, we're talking, like I say, this is very basic so the press conference at the airport yeah, um, they put a big white block over the um, it's just an overlay of a white piece of video that's why that quality is so low because it's overlay so they tell us they need the film off, put it onto videotape and then put a white rectangle over the podium yeah. The problem they've got with that is that the shot zooms in and they've managed to zoom in with it. I mean, They've done a great job for 74 but I think yeah. if you're remaking this film uh, for DVD and you've got all the original elements, this is one of those things that you could probably do a lot better and maintain the quality rather than having a massive quality drop and no one's done that. Well that uh, possibly not be great department and it's a
0: shame me. but it's also a shame that somebody didn't check that the name hadn't been used.
1: Yes, well, I mean, this is a low budget production. I don't think anyone was thinking along those lines.
0: Well, that's a real shame, but because it complicated the lines. But the death record logo, which is this poor dead bird lying on its back, is a great logo. And I it's think it's logo. better than Swan Song.
1: And the branding turns up in things like the record factory, and that It looks great, all those boxes with the logo on. It makes the film look higher budget than it is.
0: But those scenes, with the, where you see the rec- record boxes with the logo on, those would have had to have been reshot. There's no way you could do that. Uh, with, with, um, by the Napoleon I optics.
1: believe they found out part way through production, so that what, would
0: make sense. Yes. So
1: there was some stuff shot. There's some stuff that wasn't.
0: Well, that's great. Uh, yeah. But this is all a bit of a sidebar. This is a complication in the life of this great low-budget movie. It's a pity they had a complication because boy, do I love this film.
1: And it's got uh, our what's fast becoming one of our favorites for the film session it's got jessica harper in it
0: well and she's really she has this wonderful quality she's a waif like Mm. you're always a sucker for a waif and i am slightly too but she's she's got this really interesting she's pretty in a kind of elfin way you you're siding with her because she's this tiny little thing there's a sequence where all these singers are auditioning and they're all competing for the same part and she breaks into song and the other singers are even a bit impressed which i think wouldn't really happen in real life she's a great singer she's not a bad little dancer what do you think of her dancing it's hilarious i she has one dance
1: that she does in two films <laughs> <laughs> how, she does how it. disillusioning she's pretty good at that dance though <laughs> it's a, a bizarre sort of um it's almost like running on hot coals i would call it um sort of hops forward with her body back she does it three or four times in this film she also does it in shock treatment so that um, she's a
0: one-trick pony sadly.
1: Possibly. I mean, it, it looks good in this. It looks great in this film, and um, it does. She, uh, I can't remember what I was saying before that. Now you put me off. Yeah. Well, I'll go on a bit about
0: how <laughs> fantastic Jessica Harper is because we're instantly on her side because she's oh. just appealing. So I think she has a, a certain amount of star power in that regard. She looks great. She's got this wonderful kind of beguiling face, and she's but there's a sort of irony with it. Don't you feel that she's always listening or reacting slightly sardonically? She's kind of sardonic. I think. Phoenix as a character is yes. not a
1: nice person. No, because she sells out
0: Winslow. Instantly. She
1: sells out straight away. But
0: so does Janet in Shock Treatment. She's playing the same role. <laughs> well, we know Shock Treatment is a... Which, to the folks at home who don't know, the Rocky Horror Show was written by a genius called Richard O'Brien and his, the next thing that he did, I believe it was sequ- sequentially the next, was Shock Treatment. Was that Jade? No, tummy fell over in the room. Um... It's probably just the standard kind of pull-through virus thing. Yeah, we we'll have a quick investigation. If I don't come back in half an hour, I send the Ghostbusters. Oh, thank God. Yes, so uh, couldn't identify the source of the mysterious noise. I haven't ruled out poltergeist attack. So, but I did take more importantly, took the chance to get some snacks. So, going to crunch grapes from it.
1: That's going to be revolting. Um, Phoenix offers us our Christine for this Phantom of the Opera story as well. She's plucked from the chorus line to be the lead in the musical, as dictated by the Phantom and it's one of the few things this film actually has to do with the opera so it borrows more from Faust and uh, Faust is a, a curious story. <laughs> so have notes. you
0: actually um, researched Faust for this?
1: I didn't, I was trying to find out when Faust as a story first began, there's no original source text or anything like that but it seems to have started mainly in the 16th century but been based on a real life character from the 14th century. Is the
0: famous one the one by Goethe? Yes,
1: one yeah. of them. That's actually a bit later, I think, that's a little after the 16th. And is that um, called
0: Mephistopheles or am I getting anything? The, one of them is called Mephistopheles. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's well this is a rabbit hole but maybe we should get down a little bit. Well, because cause this I, was is...
1: curious. I was familiar with the other two source materials but I wasn't curious with the Faust one and I assumed that there was a book or something or a definitive Faust but there isn't. It's just a folktale um, that's been adapted by lots of people.
0: Is it always like a professor type character who shows himself sells, sells the devil?
1: Um, No, it's a guy who just wants unlimited power and knowledge
0: Well, Winslow doesn't want that I think he just wants
1: but he does sign the deal with the devil
0: Well, that's, that's his music He wants to get his music out there That's all he cares about Meanwhile, they're taking his music happily They're giving it to somebody else to sing And he hasn't noticed that he's being bricked up in this room He's being kept on drugs by This is a bit of a metaphor, I think For people in the music industry
1: Oh, very much which makes me think Paul Williams may have had more to do with it than uh, the script than De Palma on his own.
0: Yeah, well, he he certainly would have given his input because the songs must have been quite closely integrated into the the, the script.
1: Very much. The you know the story about the, the 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 hell of it, the final song.
0: That's I love that song so much. But, it's such so a good so do, song. Tell me, or, me more.
1: Originally, the ending of the film was meant to be uh, Swan's funeral. Ooh. And it had the few surviving characters sitting around at the funeral, and then this—I can't remember which character—someone comes up out the ground and tap dances on Swan's grave, which is where you can hear tap dancing in that song.
0: That's kind of great. I, I kind of love that. That would have been but, the
1: closing title, yeah. um, but in the end, they—I think they just couldn't afford to shoot. that But sequence. I
0: like this because it keeps the the paradise in the title. Ah, oh, that all makes it. The paradise in the title is this venue. It's a, a rock theatre, or would you call it that? You know, so, it's a,
1: yes, it's kind of a nightclub-y kind of. yeah and
0: as i said in a very early draft this film is called Phantom of the Fillmore the Fillmore East and West being famous uh, music venues in San Francisco i believe Billy Graham ran them so yeah so the the paradise is a place so it makes sense that all the major story beats take place here and also that works for the the opera thing in the Phantom of the Opera
1: yeah
0: and i do love that that ending um because well there's a number of things that, that i love about this I love the bit where what happens is Beef is eventually assassinated, isn't he? Yes. And is he assassinated by being stabbed with a, an ostrich feather?
1: No, we just two minutes ago discussed this. He has a bolt of neon lightning.
0: Oh, yes, yes. Sorry, so somebody is later <laughs> assassinated by an ostrich feather. But the point I was trying to work towards is at the height of this Frankenstein's lab show, which is great, when they're assembling this new star, he's killed with a neon bolt of lightning. But the audience just think, oh, this is part of the show. It's
1: great. Well, the whole wedding goes that way. And the the very end, uh, after the wedding, where Winslow has been struck down and Swan's been struck down and Phoenix should have lost her voice, but for some reason doesn't. Paul Hirsch, who edits this, his work on that wedding sequence is phenomenal.
0: Did he also edit Carrie, by any chance? I don't know about
1: Carrie, but he's edited anything that's got very good editing in it. Coach well, is a carries a masterpiece
0: extra. and it has split screens the way that this does too.
1: Oh, that's just De Palma. I, I, I'm very bored of De Palma's gimmicks well, after this. I
0: agree. The thing about this is that we mentioned earlier that uh, the Juicy Fruits got blown up. The Juicy Fruits have been transformed into this band. No, they had been transformed. They were a band called the Beach Bums, who were like a Beach Boys ripoff at this point and so what happens is these guys are sort of California surfer types they're singing on this set which involves like California surfer type craft. It, I have to just be frank about this for a fantastic bikini clad dancing girls who are dancing really well like they're really great dancers but you can't really see any of this because it's on half the screen in a split screen thing where there's this rather clever editing thing going on of a bomb being planted uh, in the the prop car is that does that describe it yeah museum? this
1: is de palma's big uh thing in that sense. he does in most of his films um there's two in this one as far as i can recall possibly three if you count the crows and the women dressed as crows at the end but i think two what are counts. we
0: referring to these are this would be uh these are I, I want to say badge
1: of honor but it's not called badge of honor it's uh, touch of evil um oh
0: that you read my mind it's where they plant the bomb at the beginning and they have yeah. this long tracking shot that was i was just gonna say that and i just
1: attributed that to hitchcock and it's not hitchcock at all i don't know i said It's awesome wells what it is awesome wells
0: (laughs) but we have to mention the great mancini soundtrack which has been removed in some versions insanely but that was exactly what i was thinking my friend
1: well i I don't think it's an accident de palma pay well some directors call it paying homage he copies directors he likes. yeah and he
0: quite openly he also copies hitchcock a great deal and for instance in this there's a Uh, this is the scene that I always remembered from it it's like the Hitchcock shower scene in Psycho Mm. except instead of plunging a knife into poor old Beef one Beef doesn't really deserve to he takes what they would have called a plumber's helper or a plunger giant. sink plunger yeah and he just stops because he wants to stop the guy singing his song so he does that sort of symbolically at this point and it's great because it's like an impaling or a stabbing, which it's building up to but it's a brilliant comic twist on that I think it I think De Palma was a genius and this is one of his best film it might be his best film just for showing that raw talent for storytelling on the screen
1: i agree i think once he got money things went a bit awry and i think a lot of directors work better with a lower budget i think it makes them more creative this is
0: this is like the perfect balance because although it's low budget it's wonderful visually i mean it's really good but it's not that sort of money and soul hemorrhaging hollywood big budget stuff it's it's a fantastically good use of a small budget
1: it is. There's some cleverly done shots as well that are dynamic and fun without a lot of effort. And the Phantom's cape is used to full effect toward the end. And when the he's running he's a down great corridors, he's physical
0: actor because when he's running around, he's acting with his body because it's sort of grotesque and comic. It's not. You know, it's exactly what it's called for.
1: Finley's eyes are really good as well. Um, that's <laughs> pretty much all you yeah, can see just to,
0: just to, to give a shout back to to one of the our podcasts that, that we're going to have to re-edit. It was our pilot podcast. It was one a film called Thriller. You talked about this. I think I said this actress has great eyes, and then you said great eye because she actually only has one of them. Well, the yes. same with the, the character in this, right? Yes,
1: indeed. Another one eyed. We should make a list of these at some point.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, but, but yes. For uh, a while, another. they were
1: selling replicas of that phantom mask, and I wanted one, but they were going for something like 800 quid. I that think. is a bit
0: excessive, even for yeah. you.
1: But it's such a good look.
0: I've written when Matt Winslow's mask comes off to reveal the hideous disfigurement, which is a, a classic trope of the. Uh, the Phantom of the Opera story I've written he looks like Marty (laughs) Feldman
1: he does a little bit with an eye falling down the side of his face I can see that Um, there is a a sequence as well just prior to that where the Phantom actually unmasks himself which draws us away from Phantom of the Opera uh, where he reveals himself to Phoenix on the roof and she seems kind of okay with it (laughs) so it's not the usual recording
0: she's a very appealing character uh, Jessica Harper and she's this innocent young singer who's who's singing recognises the greatness of Winslow's songs and, and she's going to sing but then she instantly sells herself out just to, to, to Swan and she's snorting cocaine and going along with his little thing so she ceases to be she's setting she's uh, set up to be quite this, an engaging sympathetic character and then she just becomes sort of a man, minor bad guy almost
1: yeah she was well, she, She kind of disappears into the background. She's present at the wedding, but she doesn't have any lines. She doesn't do anything.
0: This is her own wedding. That's that's what we point out. (laughs) She's being married to Swan. But you alluded to that earlier. This again is one of those fantastic... Brant Palmer does these wonderful things of shooting this action on the stage and the audience's reaction to it. And he places all these characters in the audience and they're they're telling all these little stories and the interaction of the audience with the stuff that's happening on stage like they go bonkers especially bonkers when beef gets killed and they just think it's part of the show and again as matt says at the wedding which is taking place on stage at the end there's a very well-wrought assassination sequence obviously i think inspired by a masterpiece of a film called the Manchurian candidate which Mm -hmm. i know matt doesn't like so i'm gonna have to drag him over the coals for that one but again, this is an assassination. Somebody ends up dead. And the audience is like, "It's great," and you're sort of not sure whether they don't realise it's really a death or whether they don't care.
1: I think because of the theatrics of beef and the construction of beef, where the audience are dismembered in order to make the yeah. parts of beef, I think it's just one step up from that. It's the same yeah. in Hollywood where realism becomes more real. You know, but, Visual but effects. But what about the wedding at
0: in. the end? Do you think that they think that is just an act?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Even Philbin getting shot, I think it's all part <laughs> of the drama.
0: Um, and again winslow
1: because when winslow's crawling across the stage they're all gathered around and crawling along with him yeah uh, almost cheering like, him along you're
0: there's right there's no but sympathy from them this observation of the sort of um the parasitic or symbiotic nature of the audience and the, and the rock acts the ex- excessive rock acts
1: the same goes for comedy as well they look at the amount of comedians who die on stage and the audience think it's part of the joke
0: I didn't know that that was a thing. But Tommy yeah, Cooper died they, on
1: stage and no one knew. They, they it was <laughs> a joke. I've had him on stage a few
0: times. Them. Boom, boom. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. But they. this is one of the great qualities of the film. This film is a great comic um, pastiche of Phantom of the Opera uh, mixed together with, as Matt says, um, just, those other two things. The <laughs> so picture Graham Faust. Yeah, but... On top of that, it's this interesting observation of the chemistry between the performer and the the audience, which I, I think it, what it made me think of is that then De Palma went on to shoot rock videos for people like Springsteen, and there's a very famous one where he turns the into the audience and he picks up this girl. this old stage and he brings this girl out of the audience, and then she turned out to be one of the chicks in Friends, I think. That's Courtney Cox,
1: that.
0: yeah. Yeah. So, but but it that suddenly made me think that it's the way he shot that rock video it was a man who really knew how to shoot a rock concert
1: yeah i'm not that impressed by that video i don't think i've ever recalled the visuals in any detail so I've we seen don't it have a few to times. pay homage a to barman.
0: that we do need to pay homage to this film i I've, I've because i'm like a dog with a bone i can't let this go it's swan who stabbed at the end of something, which, which I think was a feather from one of the exotic dancers on stage. Is oh, it's the mask.
1: One? It's the crow beak from the mask. Oh, one of
0: them has a mask. It's the black mask. Because like they're of... all
1: supposed to be dressed up as um, swans, uh, oh, black swans.
0: Well, 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 like dead birds by the stage, mm. right? I think there's
1: something diff- in the documentary where the dancers complained about their bikinis because they had black feathers on and they thought it looked too much like they had on pubes.
0: unruly <laughs> really pubes. Good name <laughs> yeah, for a band. No, exactly. but they, they do have this kind of black feathery outfit and the... the the beak headband to me looked like just another part of that so I thought they were being stabbed with the uh, the quilly end of a feather. Anyway it's a, it's a minor point and I'm glad you clarified that but what <laughs> a great movie and I, you know, of all the movies I've watched this is the one that I've wanted to immediately put back in and play again.
1: Excellent. It's a, it's a beautiful Blu-ray. Release. There's a couple of good Blu-ray releases of this. Uh, most of the good stuff was ported to Arrow. The one I on got was, was uh, Arrow. Yeah so, most of that's come from the French release.
0: Yes, because there's a very good documentary, and they're all talking in English. But it says uh, it's describing their roles on the film, it's in French. Like I don't know. Oh, Gary Graham, wonderfully. Director.
1: I think possibly because he's Canadian, he does his interview in French. Cool. So he's subtitled yeah. on it. Um, so yeah, it's but a, but it's, it's a very. Nice
0: there's some excellent documentaries. It's great transfer. I just Jessica Harper is wonderful. I don't know the name of the guy who plays Winslow. Isn't that terrible?
1: It's William Finley.
0: William Finley, but yeah. Paul Williams is. Boy, is Paul Williams great in this. The guy who plays Philbin great too. It's, I think it's a lovely movie. As I was um, saying earlier, there is a, a film out
1: there called um, Paul Williams Still Alive, which was made a few years ago by a, an American No, you guy. mentioned that. And
0: having watched this, I was hungry to see that.
1: Well, I think we should at some point, because uh, if the idea is, is that no one remembers Paul Williams, everyone remembers oh, Paul Williams the except Paul the guy Williams that Williams made that documentary.
0: In this that struck me. I mean, I've been saying he's great, but I haven't described why. He's... He's so poised and knowing and kind of as an element of self-mockery. There's a brilliant bit where we discover that he's still as young looking as he was in the 50s when he was sort of like a, a young Phil Spector type. And he's in his bathtub recording his <laughs> suicide note because at some point the devil intervenes. It's, anyway, the point is he's smoking a pipe. He's got like this kind of Hugh Hefner pipe. It's just such a perfect 50s touch. I think he's even up. got
1: a rubber duck, hasn't
0: he? <laughs> but it's uh, but he's it's a really intelligent, very subtle and and. Funny, de- 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 detailed and funny.
1: Williams popular. is an unlikely star. He's an unlikely swan, I think. Y- you would expect a tall, square jaw. Well, the extras, he was like, the
0: f- like, he wasn't supposed to be swan. He was, uh, the, the, the cast, there was a merry dance around in terms of casting in this. I can mm. just tell you that much.
1: Um, so he's an unusual choice for lead, but he works, and I think he works a lot better than anyone else would have done.
0: Well, at one point, he was supposed to be the Winslow character, believe it or not. Did yeah,
1: you know that, that wouldn't have worked, I don't think.
0: No, no. But anyway, it's, there's lots for you to learn in these extras. Folks, let me just recommend, I think this might be, the, this is, it's hard to say this because some, we've done some films that are really deep and serious and have heart. And this is basically just an entertainment, but and a confection, but what a tasty confection. What a great entertainment. This has been a podcast by my friend Matt West and myself, Andrew Cartmel. But very importantly, the music, the fabulous music you heard at the beginning and that you're listening to now is by Joe Kramer. Thank you very much, Joe.
1: What do you know about
0: it? You just pass the stuff out. I take it. I know drug reel from real reel.